If you don't remember Wilbur Underhill or the Flegel Gang, you're not alone. Chances are you have heard tell of Maul Barker and Bonnie and Clyde. They were all figures in the so-called public enemy era of the 1920s and 30s when high-profile criminals and gangsters grabbed headlines in newspapers and newsreels across the nation, and they all had connections to the Ozarks. Long before the days of Tommy guns and souped-up V8 engines, the Ozarks had been a challenge for law enforcement. Moonshiners and bootleggers were only part of this mix. The Oklahoma Ozarks had long served as hideout for bands of dastardly characters in spite of the best efforts of Isaac the Hanging Judge Parker and his federal marshals in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And not far away was the wide-open Tri-State Mining District, which attracted swindlers, thieves, and any number of other shady characters. In fact, Joplin, Missouri, center city of the Tri-State District, became one of the key towns in a corridor of crime stretching from Detroit and St. Paul southward through Kansas City to the gangster's resort of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Teenage Charlie Floyd, better known as Pretty Boy, cut his lawbreaker teeth on the bootleg whiskey run between Joplin and Wichita. Joplin got an early jump on the public enemy era in 1924 when police there gunned down notorious bank robber Roy Daugherty, a Missouri Ozarks native and one-time cowboy, who'd launched his career of crime way back in the 1890s, riding with the infamous Wild Bunch in Oklahoma. Another well-known desperado who started on horseback and lasted into the era of the getaway car met his end in the People's National Bank in Harrison, Arkansas. Mixed-race Cherokee Henry Starr died in jail four days after being shot by the former bank president wielding a rifle hidden in the vault for just such an occasion. As Starr discovered... The widespread familiarity with firearms made places like the Ozarks not only ideal breeding grounds for bandits, but potentially dangerous places for pulling off robberies. Three former Star gang members and their accomplices came to this grim realization just a year and a half after Star's death, when a teller at the First National Bank of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, sounded an alarm that attracted not only local law officers, but armed citizens and shopkeepers. Attempting to escape amid a hail of bullets from all directions, three would-be bank robbers fell dead, and three more suffered gunshot wounds before being captured. Still, the rugged rural Ozarks and its standoffish live-and-let-live residents could also make for the perfect hideout. Desperados of various stripes had cooled off in Oklahoma's Cooks and Hills for years, and the public enemy era found some of the Great Depression's most wanted criminals lying low in the Ozarks. In the summer of 1930, the very year the Chicago Crime Commission coined the phrase public enemy, one of the Windy City's most wanted was apprehended in the heart of the Ozarks. Having already done time in six different prisons, Harry Lee Watson admitted to a string of 15 bank robberies after he was captured in Texas County, Missouri. The so-called gentleman bandit, he reportedly never used profanity and was always polite during his stick-ups, and his circus performer wife had recently purchased a farm near the hamlet of Yukon and were in the process of building a mansion that law officers labeled an elaborate hideout for criminals. The capture of Watson reportedly alerted authorities to the presence of another wanted gangster on the lamb in the Ozarks. It had been more than two years since four men callously murdered four persons during and after the robbery of a bank in Lamar, Colorado. 
A landmark investigation, considered the first in which a single fingerprint led to the identification of a suspect, paved the way for the capture and execution of three members of the Flegel Gang. By the fall of 1930, only the gang leader and trigger man remained alive and at large. Unbeknownst to the citizens of Taney County, Missouri, the disheveled chicken farmer and peddler they knew as Walter Cook was actually murderer Jake Flegel, a Kansas native whose penchant for robbing gambling houses in California had earned him the moniker Wolf of the West. Using handwriting samples to track his location, officers trapped and shot Flegel aboard a passenger car at the Branson Railroad Depot on October 13, 1930. He died in a Springfield hospital the following day. Here's an obscure Depression-era song called The Fate of the Flegel Gang, performed by popular singer Frank Luther, who recorded the tune under the name Bud Billings. Now listen, my friends, and I'll tell you a story of bandits so bold Way out in Lamar, Colorado Where they robbed the town bank of its gold Two innocent bankers were murdered And another was carried from town In a cabin way up in the mountains The poor fella's body was found Then one of the bandits was wounded And begged for relief from his pain They went for the doctor to help him And later the doctor was slain At last in an Illinois city One of the bandits was found Ralph Legal then made his confession For the law had at last run him down His body will soon lie in slumber Out there near the clear western sky For robbery and cold-blooded murder Ralph Legal now goes forth to die He walks without fear to the scaffold The black cap is placed on his head The sheriff then steps on the trigger Ralph Legal, the bandit, is dead But Ralph's brother Jake was not captured For two years he wandered at will And then down in Branson, Missouri He come to the end of his trail It was there on the old station platform Where Jake Flegel made his last stand But one fatal shot from the sheriff And once more the law got their man Oh, why are these young men so foolish To think they can murder at will When there is that mighty commandment That teaches us thou shalt not kill Now listen, young man, let me tell ya Take warning before it's too late You'll find on that grave 
great judgment morning. You can't stack your cards against me. I can't imagine that anyone listening to this program doesn't know who I'm talking about if I say the three words Bonnie and Clyde, but just in case, they were a pair of young criminals who captured the nation's attention in the depths of the Great Depression, only to be gunned down by officers on a rural stretch of road in Louisiana. I'm not going to claim them as Ozarkers, Texas can have them for good or mostly bad, but I will argue that small-time crooks Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow achieved first-name-only fame because of events that transpired right here in this region. Let's head back in the hills to revisit the Ozark exploits of one of the era's most famous criminal gangs. The small gang that best encapsulated the desperation and dark romanticism of the public enemy era found its way into the Ozarks multiple times during a two-year spree. The young Texans made their first two forays into southwestern Missouri in late 1932 and early 33, bungling a bank heist in the mining town of Orinogo, just north of Joplin, on the first trip, and kidnapping a motorcycle cop who pulled them over in Springfield on the second. Releasing the cop that night in Joplin, Bonnie and Clyde and an accomplice did what less sinister tourists were wont to do in the Ozarks. They sent postcards back home. By the spring of 33, the Barrow Gang, now consisting of Bonnie and Clyde, a teenager named W.D. Jones, and Clyde's brother Buck with his reluctant young wife Blanche, were back in the Ozarks on a sort of fugitive holiday. The sequence of events that transformed them from small-time, largely unknown criminals to national celebrities squarely in the sights of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI unfolded in Joplin. Renting an apartment on 34th Street under assumed names, the quintet celebrated the end of Prohibition by imbibing a case of beer a night and pulled off a few minor robberies including a car theft in nearby Oklahoma and some automatic rifles lifted from the local National Guard armory. Alerted to the odd comings and goings and lavish spending habits of this group of attractive youngsters, local authorities suspected them of bootlegging, hard liquor was still illegal in Missouri, and mounted a raid on the gang's apartment on the afternoon of April 13, 1933. Killing two of the five officers with blasts from a sawed-off shotgun, the three men in the Barrow Gang received minor gunshot wounds themselves, but managed to escape with Bonnie and Blanche in a stolen car. All their earthly possessions remained behind in that apartment. In addition to a cache of guns and a marriage license for Buck and Blanche, Joplin police found in the abandoned apartment other items that would contribute to the folklore and blossoming public interest surrounding these footloose bandits. A poem by Bonnie titled Suicide Sal provided a dose of sensationalism, but it was the undeveloped role of camera film that did more than anything else to alter the course of events for the Barrow Gang. Just two days after the raid, the Joplin Globe published a few of the prints made from that roll of film and these were quickly wired to other newspapers around the nation. Some of the prints revealed handsome country boys, Natalie attired in city gangster duds, but the most intriguing and popular images featured Bonnie Parker, the young woman who had left her husband to hit the road with a skinny little ex-con named Clyde Barrow. One photograph featured waifish Bonnie playfully pointing a sawed-off shotgun, probably the same one used to kill the two officers, at a smiling Clyde. 
while the other pictured a cigar-chomping Bonnie brashly wielding the pistol stolen from the Springfield motorcycle cop as she posed for the camera with one foot propped up on the front bumper of a stolen car. Within days, almost every newspaper reader in the country had gotten an eyeful of Bonnie and Clyde. The Barrow Gang made a few more runs through the Ozarks during the desperate last months of their lives, robbing a grocery store in Fayetteville, Arkansas, stealing a car in Springfield. They kidnapped cinematically named pedestrian Joe Gunn in rural southern Missouri to navigate them safely into Arkansas, where they promptly released Gunn and gave him a $10 bill for his trouble. But the unpredictable youngsters were considered unworthy of trust by many within the criminal fraternity of the day. Pretty Boy Floyd warned his family members in the Oklahoma Ozarks to have nothing at all to do with Bonnie and Clyde. The end of the road wasn't too far away for the Texans when they left the Ozarks for the final time. Memorialized in a 1967 film starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, Bonnie and Clyde also inspired a number one country hit by Merle Haggard the following year. But I'm going to side with Pretty Boy in this one. We'll send you off not with Merle, but with this rendition of the Woody Guthrie ballad Pretty Boy Floyd, performed by Sam Kirby in Harrison, Arkansas in 1960. It was recorded by Mary Celestia Parlor and comes courtesy of her Ozark Folk Song Collection at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. It was in Oklahoma City, it was on a Christmas day, there come a whole carload of groceries, and a letter that did say, you say that I'm an outlaw, you say that I'm a thief, now here's Christmas dinner for the family's on relief. Now it's through this world of rambled, I've met lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun, and some with a fountain pen. And it's through your life you travel, it's through your life you roam. You won't never see an outlaw drive the family from their home. George Lucas and Billy D. Williams made it a household name with Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, but the first Lando to make headlines in the United States was probably an Ozark farm boy with an ornery streak. Lando Gunner had already knocked off a succession of banks before he escaped from jail in 1935 and was then captured along with three accomplices after a gun battle in the backwoods of Ozark County, Missouri. Unlike so many of the notable criminals of his day, Lando Gunner didn't go down in a hail of bullets. He reportedly came out of prison a changed man and devoted the rest of his working life to the Chicago Police Department. That's why you've never heard of him. As for notorious immortality, well, the Ozarks had its contributions. None more newsworthy and memorable than Maul Barker and the Barker Gang. Let's head back in the hills and revisit the most famous mugs of the public enemy Ozarks. Like Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde fame, Arizona Ari Barker probably never squeezed a trigger on her way to becoming one of the country's most wanted villains, and comparisons between the two stop there. The woman known to history and legend as Maul Barker was no nubile femme fatale, but a middle-aged matronly-looking Ozarker who may have, as the FBI suspected, shared her four sons' weakness for the wild side, 
At the very least, she was an enabling mother who stayed by her law-breaking boys no matter the cost. And there's no denying that them boys were no count. Ari and her husband George Barker raised their four sons, Herman, Lloyd, Arthur, better known as Doc, and Fred, in the small Missouri towns of Aurora and Webb City. The Barker boys were already building rap sheets when the family left the Ozarks during World War I and relocated to Tulsa, where the sons soon fell in with members of that city's infamous Central Park gang. All four did hard time in the 1920s. With Herman dead and Lloyd sitting in prison, it was the youngest brothers who would make up two-thirds of the core of the Barker Carpus Gang, which came together in Joplin, Missouri in 1931 when Fred and a fellow former inmate from the Kansas State Penitentiary, Alvin Carpus, began a string of burglaries. Later that year, Fred and Carpus, with Ari in tow, moved their operation deeper into the Ozarks renting a farm near the little town of Thayer, Missouri. That fall, Fred Barker and Carpus robbed a bank in nearby Mountain View, and Fred later killed a night constable in Pocahontas, Arkansas. Their crime spree in the Ozarks came to an end a few days before Christmas 1931, when the owner of a garage in West Plains, Missouri, became suspicious of two dapper dressers while fixing flats on their blue DeSoto. When the sheriff responded to the alert, Fred Barker killed him with four bullets at point-blank range. The two criminals escaped to Joplin and eventually to St. Paul, Minnesota, but the bulletins issued by the Howell County, Missouri Sheriff's Office included a $100 reward for tips on the whereabouts of Old Lady Ari Barker, the first public mention of the woman who would become Maul Barker. When convicted murderer Doc Barker was released from prison in 1932 and joined in, the Barker Carpus Gang began to work its way up the most wanted list. For more than two years, the Barker brothers, Carpus, and several affiliates murdered, robbed banks, and demanded ransom payments for kidnapping victims throughout the upper Midwest. Their run came to an end in early 1935. On January 16th, just eight days after the arrest of Doc Barker in Chicago, FBI agents spent the better part of four hours pouring rounds into a rented lakeside cottage in Florida. Fred and Ari Barker were both found dead inside. And FBI agents claimed that she died with a Tommy gun in her hands further sensationalized the role of Ari Barker in the criminal careers of her sons. But most historians believe FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's subsequent claim that Maul Barker was the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain of the last decade was little more than a smokescreen justifying the killing of the 60-year-old woman. Doc Barker later put an exclamation mark on the gang's story when he was gunned down by prison guards during an attempted escape from Alcatraz in 1939. The legend of Ari Barker and her boys has lived on in American popular culture in the decades since the Depression, and over-the-top Shelley Winters memorably portrayed Maul Barker in Roger Corman's exploitation film Bloody Mama in 1970. Even earlier, Winters had played the character Maul Parker, obviously inspired by the legendary Missouri mother in the popular campy 60s TV series Batman. The Barkers, or close facsimiles, have showed up in comic strips, novels, and songs. They've inspired at least two operas. We'll probably never know the real Arizona Ari Barker, born back in the hills of the Ozarks, 
But from the look of things, we won't soon forget Maul Barker and her boys. You say that I'm an outlaw, you say that I'm a thief. Now here's Christmas dinner for the families on relief. It's a strange thing how we humans romanticize certain bandits and criminals, both fictional and real. Robin Hood, Rob Roy, Jesse James, Ned Kelly, and those are just from the English-speaking world. Of course, most were admired by commoners for their willingness to, if not rob from the rich and give to the poor, at least serve as a constant thorn in the side of the rich. Jesse James's Depression-era descendants often killed law-abiding citizens during their robberies, with little evidence of redistributing their take among the needy, but as far as many people in the rural Ozarks and around the nation were concerned, these modern-day Robin Hoods were less an enemy than were the fat-cat bankers and financiers whose greed had dragged the country into financial ruin. It was just such sentiments that made venerable folk songster Woody Guthrie pin a pay-in to fellow Oklahoman pretty boy Floyd that certainly painted him a latter-day Robin Hood. And the people must have shared Guthrie's admiration— for Floyd's burial in the country cemetery at Aikens, back in the hills of the Oklahoma Ozarks, reportedly attracted 20,000 gawkers, the largest crowd of any funeral in that state's history. A year earlier, the funeral of another public enemy-era Ozarker had caused more than 2,000 onlookers to converge on a little Methodist church house in Joplin, Missouri, the crowd may have paled in comparison to pretty boys, but I'll bet it was a whole lot bigger than the one you and I will get when the end comes. Most of us don't remember the bad guy being laid to rest at this funeral. Bank robber and murderer Wilbur Underhill, who along with his three brothers learned the criminal ropes in the Ozark region's gangster town. Sentenced to life behind bars in both Kansas and Oklahoma, the tri-state terror proved a master at the jailbreak. He was on the run with old partners from the Cookson Hills following his third escape, this time from the Kansas State Penitentiary, when officers shot and killed him in late 1933 in Oklahoma. The hardened and possibly brain-damaged Underhill, nicknamed Mad Dog by reporters, was about as mean as they come, but at least his hometown didn't insist that he be buried somewhere else. That's exactly what happened to the Young Brothers the deadliest and most reviled of all public enemy Ozarkers. No catchy nicknames, no colorful Robin Hood tales of sticking it to the man shed any sort of positive light on their legacy. Though largely forgotten outside of southwest Missouri today, the public enemy era's bloodiest massacre of law officers took place just beyond the city limits of Springfield. Released from the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas in late 1931, professional car thief Jennings Young reunited with his younger brother Harry, another ex-con who had been on the lam for two and a half years for killing a night watchman in the small Missouri town of Republic. Resuming their favorite crime, the brothers showed up in stolen automobiles at their parents' farmhouse, just a couple of miles west of Springfield, shortly before New Year's. When Springfield police arrested the Young's sisters for trying to sell the stolen cars on January 2nd, 1932, a posse of 10 county and city officers, along with one civilian, converged on the Young farmhouse in the rural community of Brookline late that evening. Jennings and Harry Young were alone at the house, but despite being armed only with a Remington semi-automatic rifle and a Winchester shotgun, the brothers managed to kill or mortally wound six officers, including Greene County Sheriff Marcel Hendricks, 
before making a clean getaway. Trapped three days later in a Houston, Texas boarding house, the young brothers reportedly killed one another in a suicide pact. When angry citizens in Greene County refused to allow the young family to bury Jennings and Harry in a local graveyard, the bodies were transported 60 miles to the west and laid to rest in Fairview Cemetery in Wilbur Underhill's wide-open hometown of Joplin. The half-dozen officers gunned down that winter day in the Ozarks stood as the worst single massacre of law enforcement officials in the United States for more than 63 years until the tragic bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995. In terms of the killing of officers by firearms, the Young Brothers Massacre still has no equal in American history. The era of the anonymous folk song had largely passed even in the Ozarks by 1932, but this tragic event hasn't escaped the attention of songwriters in our own century. In 2016, Rule Chapel, a member of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, and Lori Locke released, in their words, a musical documentary chronicling the event. The album is called Storms Coming. Courtesy of Chapel and Locke, here's a little bit of one of their songs, The Ballad of the Springfield Massacre. Sad for the brave six of Springfield, their wives and their children as well. But brave are the stories thereafter The people about them will tell Don't grieve too much or their losses Just think of their work as the best Because they stood for protection because they stood for the best. <laughs> 